At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Guys, we're here. We're ready to make things happen. That's right. We're in the same room. Shit. You know what? We potted. We've potted up. That's right. That's P-O-D-D-E-D. Mm-hmm. Not potted like P-O-T-T-E-D. Although that works too. <laughs> We've potted up. I like that. That's almost... Uh, we're sharing much. the same soil. That's true. <laughs> so, and you know what? I also like another word that starts with P. It's called Patreon. Ooh, good oh, segue. I know. I'm a dork. <laughs> Guys, we want to thank you. A new Patreon member, Mare Bear. Boop, boop. Thank you so much. We, we love you. We appreciate your support That's so right. much. And I'm so excited because you get to enjoy all of our content. Right now, you guys, on Patreon, we are covering I'll Be Gone in the Dark with Michelle McNamara, who is we love her so much we're covering yeah the book and the documentary about her i guess not with her but it feels like we're doing it with her it's true yeah that's why i said it yeah exactly i love her so much so please join us at patreon.com backslash rom crime rom crime i can speak anyways guys thank you so much I'm Vanya. I'm the Rom. <laughs> and I'm Avrin, and I'm the crime. Mm-hmm. And this is Rom Crime. This is our true crime comedy podcast that has romantic transatlantic flights. I thought for sure you were going to say romantic transatlantic coach sex. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, that's it was uh, something I wanted that to. That has mile high clubs. That's, oh, that's good. That's also good. Romantic mile high clubs if that could ever be romantic that's true <laughs> I, I don't mean, know I feel like could be sure. hot I don't know about romantic think about airplane bathrooms everyone's different that's true and everyone has their thing someone likes a dirty bathroom yeah I'd be like you I can't believe we're doing this but also let's just quickly get this, get done. this done yeah yeah so we're in the air this time guys welcome to flight <laughs> Vanya and Avrin please put your seatbelts on and we'll have you to your destination in probably 60 minutes or so. God <laughs> help us all. Um, if you're lucky. That's right, guys. This, this episode, is it is a doozy. It is a doozy. And we have 
uh, one of our listeners to thank. Yes, absolutely. So um, Milk Party 666, I, I tried to find your real name on Instagram, but it's not listed. So thank you so, so much for your recommendation. We are going to tell the story of uh, Willie Roger Holder and Kathy Kirkow who uh, were record breakers for the longest distance uh, plane hijacking ever. I have to say, this is, if if, if I had a dream of the perfect rom-crime, I'm kind of thinking this is it. So I have to thank you so much for suggesting this. This is a good one too, because it's it's like Bonnie and Clyde in the sky. Oh, it is. And then, except for they... They kind of get away with it in a better way. Yeah, honestly, it's definitely not as bloody at the end. I mean, it, but way it less is... gunshot wounds, but just as much bullshit from the FBI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. bless it. So we actually read because there is not there are no documentaries, which I feel like let's should I we know. make it? I'm like we're making a documentary. Crowdsource this into somebody make oh, a, a, a movie about let's it. Do, like I mean, it doesn't have to be a documentary, even happen. a movie. It's the book is. That and I'm sure it's probably already optioned, but it's called. I'm sure it is. Yeah, it's called "The Sky Belongs to Us." Hold on one second. Look at that research. I only wrote the first half, but I feel also like the how romantic name. is that title? The sky, the sky belongs, belongs to us. us. So love. it's the skies. Sorry, the skies belong to us. Love and terror in the golden age of hijacking. Mm. And this book is written by Brendan I. Corner, and it is a page turner. Yeah, good job, a guys. Page good job, turner. Brendan. Way to go! And when was it written? Like 2014. I think so. Yeah, I, I think I it was post 9-11, just because it, def- it they definitely talk 9/11. about that in the documentary. In the book. I mean, sorry, in the book. Which, <laughs> the the, the written documents. documentary. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sorry. Um, She's sorry, anyway. <laughs> Jesus. She's so, so sorry. Uh, right, so let's see here. Let's Hold get on. S- oh, I just want to pull up because I got the book on. You guys know what Libby is? I do I, now, thanks to you. <laughs> I checked the book out from the library online, but on my phone, it was very exciting. I was like, oh my God, they have the book. Holy crap. I'm very excited because, yeah, like we said, there was no, uh, there's really no coverage of it. There's a couple articles. Yeah, there there's was like some news coverage from way Wikipedia. later. Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia. very short mm-hmm. Wikipedia page, yeah. which we, we do cite. I cite the Wikipedia. I also cite a... Fine article from the, I mean, let's see, it's an Oregon paper. It's the uh, Oregon Live, the Oregonian, sorry, Oregonian, apologize, but it's not a great article, not to be a dick, but y'all just need to be less racist. That's just my my point of view, and misogynistic, but we'll get to that later. Anyways, so, you know, pre-citing what we got going on. That's right. Those yeah. are our source materials, and thank you so much for your information. Yeah. And yeah, do you want to take it away with a little background on let's our our lovers? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I'll start with um, I'll start with. Hold on, let's see. I'm gonna start with the lady. Ladies first. Why not? Ladies you first. know. So Catherine Marie Kirkow, she was the oldest of four with three younger brothers. So there were four kids in her family. Her mother and father were divorced when she was very young, which means like they must have popped out quick kids quickly and the dad just like was like bye so they're in a coos bay by the way they which live is in oregon. coos bay in oregon and um her dad who had you know like a normal 1950s job with a bunch of kids um really always wanted to be a jazz musician and okay. eventually that itch that bohemian pull to be like part of the music man he left his family to explore in life seattle as a jazz, uh, in seattle i mean yeah. what the fuck dude go to 
New Orleans. I'm just sorry. I think this guy's a <laughs> If dumbass. you're going to do it, do it right. Don't go to Seattle. I'm sure it's fine. But like also don't leave a woman with four kids because you're an asshole. And I'm sure she wished she would have been on birth control or, you know, other things. I'm sorry. Or that I just, you wouldn't have flaked on her yeah. after having four kids to all of a sudden pursue your lifelong secret dream of jazz musicianship. Which, great. Be a jazz musician, but, like, but don't do leave your family. Do it first on the weekends or something. Yeah, you know? I don't know. It's just, there's so much unfairness for women. It just, it makes me flaming because I have a child and I or two, and I know how hard it is to have kids. Mm-hmm. Don't, I just, it, it's so easy for the guy to leave. Maybe it's not. Of course it's not, because it's not. But like back then... The woman gets stuck with it. I'm mad. I'm mad. And it's Vanya's fine. Pissed. My name's Vanya and I'm I'm pissed. Okay, so fine. So he leaves. In high school, though, so she, she you know, she's raised by her mom. I think she's doing fine. She She's basically the second mom of the household. She's yeah. the oldest. She helps raise her younger siblings. She's like very dutiful, not out playing in tag at night with all the other kids. Exactly. She's like inside helping out because her mom obviously had to get a full-time job to right. take care of them. Yeah. And she was the the thing she did have is she was a star hurdler on the track team in high school. Um, and her, but like you said, her high school teachers described her as a good student, quiet and unobtrusive. Others in town called her an all-American girl, a good solid person who regularly attended church. Great, wonderful. But growing up in Coos Bay had kept her in the dark about what was happening in the country at the time. So she was born in 1951, um, which means she's a little older than my parents, but like. You know, she what? Well, let's see. She would have been a teen. If it's nineteen fifty one, by nineteen sixty six, she would have been fifteen. Yeah, great. So she's fifty, but she, yeah, she's like, I gotta get out. I gotta get the fuck out of the city. Yeah. So she packs her bags up. She packs her little Vita bug up. Beetle, not a bug. Right. Wait, is that the same thing? It's the same thing, actually. Thank you. VW bug <laughs> and the Volkswagen Beetle are, in fact, I believe, the same car. They're Although both I'm bugs. sure I'm wrong now. Um, no, I think you're right. And but she, so she heads to Southern California, and she wanted to become a professional singer. So she kind of had the same. She had some of that stuff that her, her dad, dad had. But I will say one thing that's interesting. So you mentioned that she was like a star athlete in high school. Yeah. She also had been kind of, like we mentioned, like an unsociable, not through any fault of her own, um, younger teenager. But she really blossomed in high school, not only as an athlete, but then she turned out to be like super beautiful and discovered very early on how powerful that was. And she was like dating one of the other star athletes, but then caught the eye of a surfer who was in his 20s so she dumped her athlete boyfriend and started hanging Mm. out with like this stoner surfer and that's when she started to rebel so she had been like the dutiful responsible oldest child and then you know come that 16 17 years old she just rebelled and so she was looking basically for ways to shock yeah her mother and her friends and all of that stuff so um her best friend in high school's name was Beth Newhouse. They were in choir together and did track together. Mm. And so after she kind of explored dating around, she went to a couple, uh, a couple of like Black Panther meetings just oh. so that she could tell people that she was involved in the Black Panther movement to shock in them back in Coos Bay. Oh yeah. my God, I love she it. She loved the, to shock the people. So she's kind of bored out of her mind though and she's not really going anywhere. They say she had a hard time um, holding down a job. So, like, she worked at a pharmacy and then got fired for stealing amphetamines for her boyfriend. <laughs> and she was a big shoplifter. She was a typical rebellious. Yeah. Also kind of wannabe, like, revolutionary hippie type, yeah. you know. because well, a lot of people were back then, right? Like, oh, that was, yeah. like, the whole... We're one or the other. ...thing. I mean, right. But I also feel like when you have too much responsibility put on you as a younger child, 
yeah, fuck responsibility. Eventually you're going to be like, I shed my responsibility yes. cloak and I'm going to go have fun And now. people need to be free. People need to be free. I mean, I'm maybe I'm just one of those weirdos, but like if, if I ever felt like things were like too on me, mm-hmm. listen, I wouldn't maybe necessarily rebel that way as a teenager, but I would definitely find a way to release that shit mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. i see where she's coming from i guess yeah you know? so beth newhouse her best friend from high school calls her up one day and is like hey she had, was desperate for a roommate basically because her oh. sister had moved out kind of suddenly to move in with a boyfriend or something and so she was like i've got this amazing room in san diego you should totally come live with me oh. and having nothing else to do yeah she's like yes i'm coming i'm on my way are you going to San Diego? <laughs> Just kidding. I know it's not the same, but you know, kind of. So she gets down there. So I'm going to stop there for a second and give you a little bit of the background that I, and I please fill in anything that you, about our other uh, star-crossed lover in this story, Willie Roger Holder. And he goes by Roger, so we'll call him Roger. Okay, great. So we call him Roger. Now here's the thing. Wait, I don't have anything before they met, though. You don't. Oh, okay. Well, the well, only well the only thing I have, which I don't know if it's a reveal. Here we go. I'm just doing it. Reveal it. To so, us. these two meet in San Diego in 1972. In January 1972, 23 year old Willie, sorry, Roger Holder, knocks on the door looking for a roommate for Beth. For Beth. For mm-hmm. Beth. Fucking Beth, man. Because they had been neighbors, like a while back and they ran into each other at a bar and he yeah. was like oh give me your address I would love to like we should get together sometime right. and I guess Beth and according to the book was like I don't really want to but I did because I just was trying to be polite right so he comes knocking on the door looking for Beth Catherine answers the door and she had just gotten out of the shower and there are different for me there's different like takes on this but the misogynistic bullshit Oregonian was like basically like she was slutty she opened the door sopping wet in a robe with soap in her eyes and he lacked what she what he saw. I mean, it was just like fuck the Oregonian. I'm sorry, guys. But anyways, the, I, this is how I choose to. And maybe you saw it differently, but because you actually, sorry, uh, Avrin read the whole book. I read here and there because my children don't let me do anything. It's fine, but I did read some of it. Anyways, but so she she opens the door. She had just gotten out of the shower, and she's kind of like getting her. She literally hopped out of the shower to answer the door right. because she. Someone knocked on the door and she had just started putting shampoo in her hair oh, and she shit. got out of the shower. That's crazy. To answer the door, which is why the thing about like soap in her eyes oh. and like being soaking wet. Okay. So they made it sound. But anyways, but there was immediate chemistry here. They were, there was something, who knows? It was like a meat cute of all proportions. According like, to the book, she said that she opened the door and standing there was a like tall, trim very attractive black man who was wearing these little spectacles and he looked like very put together. And she just kind of stared at him and he was like, oh, I'm here looking for Beth uh, Newhouse. Is this where she lives? And she's like, oh, she's my roommate. She's not home right now. But they just keep staring at each other and she can't shake the feeling that she's she knows him from somewhere. She's met him before. She's not <sighs> sure why. Because they had. And this is what I know. They had met before as children, you guys. And if you can believe in kismet, I mean, hello. So I think what we should do before you reveal this cute beat cute. Oh, okay. Is I just want to get, let me just give a little background on him to when he gets Thank to Coos Bay. Thank you. Great. So Roger Holder was the son of Sevenus and Maria Holder. And Sevenus's father was a like lifelong naval officer, like worked his way up through the ranks. Yeah. And um, 
they traveled around a lot. They did. They lived in, I think, um, Alameda and Oakland. And eventually he wanted to be home at night instead of like constantly being like he was on all kinds of naval warships for like years at a time, like big warrior, wow. big naval like war hero. So he gets a job at um, I think it's in a kitchen at some kind of naval something in Coos Bay. The family packs up, moves from Alameda when they arrive in Coos Bay. The person he'd clearly arranged this um, adorable like four bedroom house. All the kids were so excited they were going to have their own bedrooms. Um, immediately upon seeing the family was like, oh, I'm so sorry. There's been a mistake. That house actually isn't available anymore. And they were really uh, obviously doing it because they didn't realize that they had been talking to a black man when they made this agreement. So then the family experiences incredible racism That's in the town bullshit. of Coos Bay. So much so that, it, um, you know, it's not just the bad language and the rowdy good old boys showing up at night, like threatening them and causing all kinds of chaos. Not and just noise. that. Not just that, Ugh. but also the youngest child, um, I think his name was jo- jo- Josh, Josh or Justin. Sorry. I read this whole book today, you guys. So there are <laughs> some things that are a little foggy, yeah. um, like names, but um, he was beaten up by a kid at school so badly that he was hospitalized. And That's then this, so this definitely caused a, portion of the town to be like this shit be wrong like what the fuck is wrong with you people like we are mm-hmm. not this you know hillbilly like kkk town even though clearly they certainly had parts of them that were yeah. and so they're desperate to keep the um holders there they promise everything's going to be fine but at this point the damage has been done yeah. the the child was hospitalized and so the family's like no we're we're transferring our our butts on out of I here mean, because i could only imagine if that happened in my family my dad would be like ready to k- kick somebody's ass mm-hmm. and you know it it's just so upsetting that people are awful i know and like that I just and that we're still dealing it. with this very much today that's very true and um so one of the very last things that holder remembers before they left coos bay to move back to oakland was he and his older brother Sevenus were walking around down by Sevenus some... Junior. Sevenus Junior, oh, sorry. No, I'm just Sevenus Senior. Yeah. Um, were walking um, down by a lake and they saw a pair of young people, like a brother and sister, like dipping jars into the water. And now I'll let you take it oh, over. Oh my God, I love this. See, that's so great that you read the book. Um, so yeah, Ooh. they had a brief conversation. Uh our, our Roger and uh, Catherine at ages 11 and 8 about hunting salamanders at, a, at the fishing spot in Coos Bay. And it was the kind of coincidence young lovers might latch on to as def- definite proof of kismet. Absolutely. And yeah. fate is a big part of this story for these yeah. two. But I think it's so funny. So it's a small detail about that salamander conversation so he i guess calls to them hey what are you doing to her and her brother and she's like we're catching salamanders and she holds up this jar this mason jar and he looks at her and he's like those are tadpoles Ah. and she's like no they're not and he's like yeah and she pulls one out and she goes this is a salamander and like drops it turns the lid on starts to walk away turns around over her shoulder and yells at him the next time we meet i hope you've learned a little bit about salamanders oh my god that's so cute so she's like schooling him even though she's probably wrong yeah um, for sure and uh and she must be the eight-year-old right yeah she's yeah a she's younger. the eight-year-old oh my god that's so cute but so when she's staring at him when he comes looking for beth and cannot figure out where they've met yeah well they eventually do 
Beth comes home. He comes back. They smoke a joint together. The girls, by the way, are like minor, minor pot dealers on the side. Her other job to get by right. is she works in a happy endings massage parlor. Which but, is like, I'm like, what the hell? But also maybe she couldn't keep a job for whatever reason. But yeah, again, that article, they're like, she's she works in a masseuse parlor and has to, she, she's like convinced to give happy endings to regular customers. Right, basically like that. that's what it is. <clears throat> so like the first time somebody asked her to do it, she's horrified, obviously. She thought she was just getting a job as a masseuse, but then it becomes very clear when this guy's like, what do you mean you're not going to do it? And she's like, oh, that's why the... The owner of this place hired me, even though I have zero experience with professional massage therapy of any kind. So, okay, um, I guess I'm going to have to do this. And again, remember where we are now. We're in like the 70s, free right. love, women, like the liberate, sexual liberation and freedom. And I'm sure part of her hated it. A lot of her probably hated it. But part of her was probably also like, fuck the man in convention and like what right. a woman's supposed to be like. And I can make money doing whatever I want to do. Well, you know. And it's all true. That's that's how she she did it. But she did tell her mom that she was a secretary in a doctor's office. So clearly she wasn't like proudly flouting what she was doing. Um, So, yes, they smoke a little weed together. And then he's like, I would love to take you. He's trying to like reconnect with his old neighbor, Beth, who apparently had never liked him. He (laughs) she always thought he was like odd and eccentric. And he is. But he's also very, very handsome and very smart. Um, and so he offers to take them both to breakfast. Beth is like, no, thank you. But Kathy's like, yes, please. Yeah. So on that first date over coffee, they were, they figure out how they know each other. That is adorable. Yeah, it's very cute. And they fell in love, fell very hard. And they hard. fell very hard in love. But I think it's more important before we move forward with our, our lovers mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about uh, Rogers. So we talked about Kathy's kind of high school experience, like yeah. star athlete, good student, popular into you know like rebellion and trying to be shocking and trying to figure out who she is and what she's going to be and just kind of you know she's listless for sure and she's she has no idea what she wants to be when she grows up but she knows she wants it to be fun and she wants it to feel fabulous i agree yes roger on the other hand (laughs) at the age of 17 lies about his age and enlists in the army, being, you know, the son of like a... Oh, you all right? Yep. Cut myself earlier. Band-aid. She just ripped a Band-Aid off. Just punishing <laughs> herself over here, guys. Um. So he joined the army and was um, sent to Vietnam. So, of course, this is the height of the Vietnam War. But unlike, um, you know, a lot of people that went to Vietnam that were like, the minute they could get out of there, they wanted out of there right. he kept like just re-upping like tour after tour and like worked his way up um and eventually uh joined the top tigers which was the 68th assault helicopter company so he learned to fly planes he learned oh. about like mechanical engineering um and then he also i believe even worked up to something higher than that but the horrors he had witnessed in the, his several tours tours i think he did like three or four tours in vietnam mm-hmm. um his Platoon was on their big, bulky M113, I think, M113. I don't know if it's a tank or a truck or a mobile army station, because I don't know enough about the Vietnam War. Um, But I read a whole book about these hijackers today, guys. Um, But uh, it hit a landmine, and he was the only survivor. And when he came to, he could see that one of his, you know, 
mates that had been on board with him had been completely like cut in half and then he could also see like brain matter leaking out of the head of another one of them he had immense survivor's guilt and uh, coupled with just like the anxiety of what i imagine i mean we all know the vietnam war did terrible things to the mental health of everybody that participated in it but he is clearly suffering ptsd and he's using marijuana to try to cover it and then uh one day he buys a joint when he's in town somewhere gets busted that gets court-martialed, thrown in the army barracks, completely demoted for one marijuana joint. That's bullshit. Um, And that is when his rage towards the U.S. military and the treatment of himself and the treatment of, like, the things that he'd been asked to do and then the way he was treated as a black man in the military versus, you know, his white counterparts. Um, I don't think he said this, but there was, like, a very famous saying that, you know, uh, a white soldier could kill a bunch of Viet Cong babies in cold blood and nothing would happen. But if a black soldier forgot to sh- shine his shoes one day, he'd end up demoted and like in army prison for it. Yeah. So, Even to all of that. Yeah. Oh. So eventually because of this arrest and court marshalling and demotion, he's transferred out of Vietnam back to Fort Hood in Texas to like work on the base there. And that is after everything, he's been like a combat soldier, mm. like flying helicopters, shooting machine guns out of tanks and helicopters and just like rising through the ranks. And that was kind of his whole identity gets demoted, gets sent back, basically goes AWOL from Fort hood. Cause he can't, yeah, I would. can't deal with it. I would. So he runs off, gets himself a new identity. Cause he doesn't want to go to jail for, you know, going AWOL gotcha. and had met, um, Beth when he was using a different name. And I think that name was like Leonard white or something like that. So that was another part of why she thought he was sketchy. Cause now he has a totally different name and he's like, yeah, that was the name I used because I abandoned the military, which actually a lot of people were fine with. They were like, yeah, good for you. Right. Um, but that's why he had a different name. So at this moment in time, when he's coming to see Beth, he he's gone through all of that. And um, PTSD is going to be a huge theme throughout his story. For sure. So I just think it's important that you know that all of that happened before he ever met Kathy. Like crazy, crazy Vietnam stories. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I don't, I don't, didn't, I never knew anyone who had been in Vietnam. Well, that's not true. But I only knew that my, my grandpa was in Korean, the Korean War. And he's, before he, he died quite a few years ago, but he would, he was very much PTSD and fucked yeah. up for the rest of his life and an alcoholic because he couldn't handle yeah, couldn't handle the experiences the, the, that happened. Well, it's like when we were talking about PTSD in regards to victims of the Golden State Killer and how <sighs> what it does is it rewires your central nervous system completely. Yeah. It changes who you are. It changes how you react to things. To everything. Yeah. Because of the trauma that you've suffered. And so it's very real. It's like a, yeah. it's a very real disease that a lot of people face but specifically veterans and um also as i'm sure those of you who like watched forrest gump or maybe were alive during the vietnam war or anything Mm -hmm. you remember how a lot of americans felt about this war it was a war they did not think we should be in it was a war that they thought was unjustified and it was just killing thousands and thousands of our men and then all of these um, Viet Cong soldiers, but mostly civilians as well and stuff like that. And nobody really understood why the war was going on. And there was a lot of bullshit in politics where it was like, well, I can't be the president that loses the first war that America ever loses by like withdrawing. And I'm pretty sure that's why Nixon just kept it going. He was like, I can't be the first president in like U.S. history to lose a war. That's just <laughs> And so, so um, the you know, there was a lot of anger towards 
the war specifically and a lot of anger within returning vets from the war. And Roger will be no different. And then he also is just super pissed off specifically at the army for his treatment after all he had done, after all he had served. Right. And to just, you know, the fact that he had to like go AWOL just to get out of, you know, being treated like a Mm -hmm. schmo for smoking a marijuana cigarette. Well, and also he saw his father go through, you know, the ranks and it was respected you know, mm-hmm. for, for so he probably had that on him as well. Like, well, my dad did this, Absolutely. and I want to be. Yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. very hard. So, well, but the, then they met. Then they met, and they, and then you know, you always talk about it when two people. We talk about it in like more disturbing cases where two bad people yes. meet, and it gets real gross, and like and lots of murders happen. Yeah, but kind of in this way, these two met. She was somebody who was eager and like in in like into finding a purpose so she had already been to like black panther rallies and right and she was looking kind of like yeah yeah. she was looking for excitement Mm -hmm. she was looking for something that felt bigger than her like small town you know yeah had ever offered her and he was a war hero in her eyes like when she heard all these stories he was incredibly intelligent but he was also eccentric and kind of odd so something that became a weird fascination of his after going AWOL besides feeling angry. He also became like obsessed with astrology and like reading the stars and looking for the universe to show him a sign of like what his purpose was going to be, right? Because he had been serving what he felt at the time was his purpose. And then to be just callously tossed down back to some, you know, like mechanic in Fort Hood in Texas. So he's angry Suffering from PTSD, self-medicating, and then also totally obsessed with astrology and the universe showing him the way. And he sees that in her when yeah. he they discover that they've met before. And um, then he starts just getting really into, yeah, some of the Black Panther uh, conversations that are going on. He's really fascinated by that group. And then I was going to let you talk about um, Angela Davis because for yes. him... When he starts reading about her, yes. that's when this whole plan forms. Because that's he right. finally feels like when he learns about this woman, he now knows that he... Because right. he knows that he and Kathy are meant to do something spectacular. And she did too. You know, they some of the articles were talking about like how she was so innocent. And she's like, no, I wanted to... I wanted to make change. Mm-hmm. So this is this. So this is interesting. So Angela Davis was in jail. She... She was, at the time, she was a member of the Communist Party and became involved in numerous causes, including the second wave feminist movement, which is... Yep, and she was also a professor at UCLA who was fired because Ronald Reagan, who was, I believe, a senator or congressman at the time, petitioned to have her fired because she taught about communism and Marxism and, like... And then that was overruled and she got rehired, but then they fired her for saying like fuck or something like that. So it's crazy. But yeah, so so just, just a little background... Second wave feminism. Do you guys know what that is? I didn't. I don't. It, it was a period of feminist activity and thought that began and a thought that and thought that began in U- the United States in the early 1960s and lasted roughly two decades. It quickly spread across the Western world with an aim to increase equality for women by gaining more than just enfranchisement. Whereas first wave feminism focused mainly on suffrage and overturning legal obstacles to gender equality. Right, like voting and property. Second wave feminism broadened the debate to include a wider range of inequalities, 
so it was a movement that was focused on critiquing the patriarchal or male-dominated institutions and cultural practices throughout society. So it also drew attention to the issues of domestic violence, which we talk a lot about, and mm-hmm. marital rape, which we also talk a lot about. Um, anyways, so I just thought that was interesting. She was also a part of the, the Black Panther movement, the Black Panther Party. And so here we go on the Black Panther Party. Now, I did not know enough about it. I needed to research a little. And we'll also put it in the notes. So if anyone wants yeah. to look at some, like, I watched a couple of the YouTube videos and there's also um, some archival things you should look at. So the Black Part- Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is what it was called, uh-huh. was founded in October 1966 in Oakland, California by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. It was a revolutionary, or- revolutionary organization with an ideology of black nationalism, socialism, and armed self-defense, particularly against police brutality. Isn't that interesting with what we're like living right now? Yeah. I was a little bit shocked, actually. I was like, what, really? Just, I mean, I don't know why I was shocked, but I was like, oh, this is like such a problem that they created the Black Panthers to protect themselves. It was part of the black power movement, which broke from the nonviolent protest tactics of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led by Dr. Martin Luther King, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, that was just a little side note. There's more on that, but um, so much of it was like, for example, the Black Panther Party would, if somebody was getting arrested, they would be there with the police and um, escort the person to the jail to make sure nothing happened to them. Right. And then usually bail them out and stuff like that, which I think is very interesting because even, not even, but I guess obviously, it should have been obvious for all of us, that back then in the 60s especially, people were not being treated, black people right. were not being treated Civil fairly. The movement was still like in the process of, I mean, yeah. it was all happening. Yeah. So, I mean, so they created an actual party to protect people, which, Wow. So, um, she's also, she's all, so I'm back to Angela Davis. She's also, um, the campaign against the Vietnam War. That Mm -hmm. was one of her big things. And in 1969, she was hired as an acting assistant professor of philosophy at UCLA, but gets, you know, canned and then goes back and all these things. But however, so this is, this is the impetus of everything. In 1970, in 1970, I haven't even been drinking. What's wrong with me? I'm just tired. I've been drinking a little. Um, <laughs> in 1970, <laughs> guns belonging to Davis were used in an armed takeover of a courtroom in Marin County, California, in which four people were killed. So prosecuted for three capital felonies, including conspiracy to murder and held in jail for over a year. She was ultimately acquitted of all charges in 1972. But but she's a big before catalyst that for happened. Our, yeah. So interestingly enough, too, when she, you say that her guns were used... Yeah. In in this crime. She was not there. Basically, the man who she had hired to kind of be her bodyguard because people were after her. She was like a very recognizable, loud mm-hmm. member of these organizations that um a lot of, you know, nasty, horrible white folk were intent on bringing harm to. So they she were hired scared her. Of her. Yeah, yeah, they were scared of her. She hired herself a bodyguard, purchased guns for him to have to protect her, and he just happened to use those in commission of a crime. And because, you know, the powers that be were looking to probably silence her, you know, and we're like, yeah. well, we can totally say that somehow she, this was a conspiracy that she was involved in. So after reading all about Angela Davis... And consulting many astrological charts mm-hmm. and following the stars and the signs, while Kathy is kind of stressing because 
they've like we said they met in January it's now the summer let's say like June-ish um Beth and her boyfriend don't like that Roger's basically like moved into their apartment then there's like an altercation between the boyfriend so between Roger and Beth's boyfriend and Beth and the boyfriend are like we're out they can't afford to live there without them so they like stiff the landlord on a month's rent and then have to like get out of there sheerly based on her charm she knew how to work a man to get things like and I'm not saying that to be insulting like she knew how to use her God-given gifts you know to get a man to be like even though you don't have the deposit or the paperwork or any of it I'm gonna let you rent my my room in this you know flat over here so they get this teeny flat but they're going broke because Roger refuses to get a job that he thinks is beneath him after everything he's done in the with the military and served his country and he's just positive that the universe is going to reveal to him his great purpose so she is like you know working at massage parlors and doing her thing and she's trying to be better about she's giving bitter hand jobs bitter bitter hand jobs she's trying to be better about like smoking less of the weed she's supposed to be selling but they're struggling financially struggling financially and she's kind of nervous and like very stressed out about it and meanwhile he is you know locking himself in the library and reading all about Angela Davis and also this is the height of the golden age of what at the time was called skyjacking. Right. So it started in the mid-60s. And people, so air travel, this was like back in the day where you could, you know, like smoke on airplanes. They still served you like steak Beautiful and meals. potatoes on China. And this is in coach. You know what I mean? Like air yeah. travel was this like amazing fantasy that none of us today can even fathom. I literally did ride first class once and I feel like it came maybe close to making me understand, but still no. No, still no. Um, still no. They care, but they don't give a shit. Yeah. And they gouge you for every, I mean, it was, in this day and age, it was like you were treated like yeah. a fucking king. Yeah. Even in coach. And everybody, I heard that like back in the day, everyone, even like. Everyone wore their finest outfits. Yes, you got dressed up. And it really was that time of like the Pan Am, you know, like stewardesses with like the short little tight and they had, they got, it was terrible and sexist and awful. Um, But, you know, they wore tight little outfits and everything was like very glamorous. Mm -hmm. Um, But people started hijacking planes and the airplane's response to it was basically like, okay, in the safety, for the safety of our passengers and our crew, our our like standard response to hijacking because what it really started out for the most part as being is people wanting to go to Cuba because we weren't allowed to go to Cuba. Oh really? Right. So people who wanted to defect, they were one of the very first people that did this was like, I'm tired of being an American. Interesting. And then several of them were maybe people who had fled Cuba, gotten to the United States, realized that it wasn't for them and wanted to go home. Oh, Weird. Or just, you know, they said it was all it was all kinds. It was teenagers. It was middle-aged men. It was school teachers. It was moms with their babies. It was like people were hijacking planes left and right. Jesus. So much so that there's a reason why this is called like the golden age of skyjacking yeah. or hijacking. Because it was so common that it was happening like every week sometimes more than once in a week and like different airlines, obviously Um, sometimes there would be more than one hijacking in a day. And it was one of those things where nobody was ever really hurt. Right. And that's what they say kind of emboldened people to keep doing it. 
an airplane was this new phenomenon, right? And so to take over an airplane in the sky was to basically like take center stage in the biggest, most beautiful stage in the world where everyone's going to be like, what's going to happen? But what it ended up being because of the airline's reaction to it was many times they just took these people where they wanted to go. And that was it. Oh my God. And then they would land in Havana. The hijacker would get off the plane and, you know, say that he wanted to have like an audience with Castro and hoped that he was going to be, you know, like brought into the inner circle of Fidel Castro because these people were very delusional for the most part. But then the crew and other um, passengers would literally usually get off the plane, were fed lunch and then got back up on the plane after it refueled and flew back and were really only delayed by like three hours. Oh my God. But this was happening over and over again. And it was becoming an issue because people were getting, things were escalating, right? So we start off right. with like just wanting free passage somewhere. Well, then you get the the age of the ransom demand. Yes. Right? So Which you've is got, where we're yeah, at, right? Right. Like, so in the late uh, 60s, early 70s, people start demanding money. And so the airline keeping in step with its tradition of just like comply, comply, they're like, Okay, what do you... Sure. So then they get the <laughs> ransom. Now, a lot of these people... Would you like that on China, my friend? Yeah. And would on you a, like some champagne while yeah. we wait for your money from Here's the bank? $500,000. Um, but yeah, so it was, you know, something that was causing a great deal of concern for, like, the FAA, which I believe is, like, the Flight or Aviation Association mm-hmm. or something like that. But then also, like, lobbyists. Senate, the Senate was always trying to pass, like, safety measures for airline travel. Um, They wanted to do, like, safety precautions, like checking people's bags or stuff like that. Because people would be armed. They just very rarely would hurt anyone. But that is not how it went always. In fact, there was a string of things that went down where um, someone would be injured, either a crew member or um, a passenger. And then the FBI got brought in. And so what started happening was people who were hijacking planes were getting picked off by FBI agents that were like snipers. Oh, wow. And so while he's obsessing about Nancy Davis, is that her name? Did I refer Angela. To? Angela Nancy Davis. What did I say that? <laughs> Whose name is that? Angela Davis. He's also been following all these stories about hijackers and studying the ones that went right and the ones that went wrong. Because he has a plan, you guys. He knows now what his purpose and his and what? Kathy's purpose life is. Kathy's sick of giving hand jobs. And she's over giving hand jobs. But he creates this entire plan. He like writes it all out. He has um he goes back to his parents' house that they don't really speak anymore because of, you know, he told his daddy what AWOL and it was oh. all like very dramatic. So they're not they're not completely estranged. Oh, Oh my God! What? Sidebar, you Ooh, guys. Give, me. give me a This sidebar. is why you sh- it's too hard to read a book in one day and then also take good notes. I was like, know the story and tell it to the best I think of your you're ability. Doing amazing. So before he went to Vietnam the first time, uh, Roger was also a ladies' man. Yeah, he was kitty. He's a very good-looking guy, and accidentally knocked up a high school girlfriend right. named Betty Bullock, right. and knocked up. That's so trashy, Evan. She got pregnant. With twin girls, no less. Oh, my God. And so even though they weren't, like, super serious as a couple or whatever, he did the right thing by her and married her before he went to the war. But then that was another thing that had him disillusioned. My bad. This was huge. I can't believe I forgot it. So on top of the Army's bad treatment of him, um, in between some one or two of his tours in Vietnam, he came home and found uh, Betty, his wife, and the mother of his do- uh, twin daughters in bed with his, like, old high school buddy. 
So they got divorced. Well, that's just awful. It is just awful. But I also don't think that like they were right. They weren't. But anyway, I just don't know why I felt all of a sudden that I needed to make sure you guys knew. I think it's important. But so he's making this plan. I've lost my train of thought completely. No, we're 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 about to hijack the plane. Yeah, we're about to hijack the plane. But right now we're in like the the aha astrological stars aligned for him. It's all meaning. So he goes back to his parents' house. Oh yeah. He gets the one thing that he needs, he thinks, to pull this off, which is some it was like some book, a military book about bombs and stuff like that. So he like reads up on how to build bombs and writes this like big elaborate sketch of a bomb inside of a suitcase. And then there's like a letter to be read and all that stuff. And then uh, tells Kathy, I've discovered what we're meant to do with our lives. Meanwhile, Kathy's broke. They're both broke. Her hands are chapped. <laughs> She's just doesn't know what to do. And her dad, who's living in Seattle, working as a failed jazz musician. Just kidding. Now he's a real estate guy. Um, Is he? Yeah. Uh, he has offered to fly her, uh, her out for a visit. And then she's hoping maybe she can get him to give her some money. So that's her plan. And then Roger's like, but listen to my plan. And he lays the whole thing out for her. And he's a little nervous about what she's going to think about it all. And after he finishes laying out his whole plan, which we'll walk you guys through, she looks at him and she says, so what do I wear to a hijacking? Oh, my God. So, yes, while she went to Black Panther meetings and clearly was, like, not a dum-dum because these two get away with some crazy shit, she was also, I think, just... A little bit of like a flighty, fly by the seat of my pants, yeah. break all the rules kind of girl that was like, that sounds awesome. What should I wear? Oh Which God. made me like her actually even more. Yeah. Um, so the plan is going to be that they are going to hijack a plane flying um, from Los Angeles to San Francisco, where they will demand $500,000 and the release of Angela Davis. That's right. And then what's going to happen is that they are going to land in San Francisco. Angela Davis is to be waiting on the tarmac in a white dress, so he knows for sure it's her. They're going to let half the passengers off the plane, get the money, get Angela on board. Then they're going to fly from San Francisco to Hawaii, where they will allow the rest of the passengers to get off. And then Kathy, Angela, and Roger, along with the crew of the airplane, obviously, will fly to Hanoi, where they are going to take this money and give it to like Viet Cong orphans. Oh. So this is his big master plan. He tells her this the, the day before they're going to do it. So she really didn't know about it in advance. Oh, and didn't have time to think too much about it. So the next day, she's like, wait a minute. I can't afford plane tickets to Hawaii because I have like $2 in the bank. And he's like, here's what we're going to do. You're just going to write a bad check. If for some reason they can figure that out quickly enough, just tell them, oh, it's, I dropped my paycheck in the bank deposit this morning. It just, it'll clear by the end of the day, please. I'm cute. You'll believe yeah. me. So they, <laughs> they get to the airport and basically somebody like comes up to a Roger who is using a pseudonym, a pseudonym and it says, there's a problem with the, your traveling companion. The check bounced. It's a bad check. Kathy comes over. They try to, like, talk their way out of it. And they're, like, so sorry about it. Like, no. So really? she can't convince them. And now they're just, you know, he's already got lots of, like, paranoid PTSD-related, marijuana-related 
you know, issues going on in his head. And he's like, it's all falling apart before it even started. This was called Operation Sisyphus as well. That was what he called their hijacking plans that he'd been working on for months. Um, And Sisyphus, I believe, is something to do with uh, Greek mythology. Um, So they go to a bar and they start drinking Bloody Marys. And they're like, well, or I think she's probably like, well, we tried. And he's like, there has to be a way to make my plan come true. And then as they're sitting there, Kathy remembers that she still has her one-way ticket to Seattle that her dad had sent her when she was supposed to go visit him. So they go to the ticket counter and ask if she can exchange this one-way ticket or this round-trip ticket for two one-way tickets. And they do. So another big part of their plan is that once they um, get to, like, the boarding area for the plane, they no longer know each other. They don't sit together. He is going to sit somewhere on the plane. She's going to sit somewhere else. Uh, her job is the lookout, right? Because he's been doing lots of uh, research on like things with FBI, people secretly getting on planes to like shoot these hijackers. Yeah. So her job is to be on standby, paying attention. Anything seems like fishy or like someone like a oh coup God. or like people are about to raise up. She's supposed to sound the alarm. Um, otherwise, act like she doesn't know him. So they get on the plane. He's wearing his like pressed army uniform because he wanted to look like an officer in the military and the whole flight's going by and he is like panicking he makes like small talk with his seatmate and like tells crazy lies Kathy makes uh small talk with her seatmate doesn't really lie that much plays gin rummy all the men are ogling her you know and it's they're um they're like 20 minutes to landing and actually now that I think about it I think this flight was from uh from Los Angeles to, um, where's Mount Rainier? Olympia or okay. Seattle. I mean. So that's actually where they, because I just now remembered in the book that the pilot's like, if you look out your left, you'll see Mount Rainier. That's Seattle. All right. Yeah. So that's what, that, so that's where the flight was going, I guess. Yeah. Not San Francisco. Yeah, that's where Seattle. the hijacking comes in. Yeah. My bad. So he realizes it's kind of now or never. And earlier in the flight, one of the um, flight attendants had accidentally spilled a little bit of his like bourbon on his uniform. And she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And he was very sweet. And he was like, please don't worry about it. She's like, no, we can give you a dry cleaning voucher and all this stuff. So the three um, flight attendants are now at this point in the flight, in the back, stuffing their faces with food because they have not eaten in like probably 15 hours and they're never allowed to eat inside of like passengers because God forbid they eat. Um, And they hear the whoosh of the curtain behind them. She turns around and she sees... Roger. And her first thought is, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I forgot to bring him that dry cleaning slip. I promised him. That's why he's here. I told him I was going to give him a dry cleaning slip. He looks very sweaty. She says all of the kindness. And of course, now I can't remember her name because I just read the book. I didn't take good notes. Um, But uh, she notices that all the kindness in his eyes has disappeared. And he gives her two pieces of paper. He says, read these. And he's holding his briefcase and as she starts to read the note, which is very, very clearly a, you know, here's what's going to happen. Yeah, ransom. Um, or... He starts tapping on top of his uh, briefcase where there's very clearly a wire wrapped around his finger, like or uh, something wrapped around his finger attached to a wire coming out of the briefcase. So one page is a list of demands. The next page is a diagram of what's in the briefcase, which is a bomb. And then he's like, you have two minutes. Go. So she races up to the... Cockpit. <laughs> Jerry Jurgens, 
who is the pilot, and Thomas Crawford, who are the co-pilot. She comes in and she's like, we have a situation. We're being hijacked. And poor Jerry Jurgens is like, you've got to be kidding me because, you guys, this is the second time he's been hijacked this month. Like, that's how common. Oh my this God. pilot had been hijacked earlier, like a, a week or two earlier. So crazy. So he looks at the note, and it's got some, like, bad spelling errors, and it's a little bit strange. But he looks at the diagram, and both of these men are, like, former army, and they're like, no, that's legitimate. Like what, because also Roger knew all about bombs and our military devices and stuff like that. So they're like, all right, I guess uh, go bring him up here. Right, he may be dyslexic, but he knows a little bit. Yeah, but he he definitely has a bomb. So Roger is brought up into the cockpit. He's, again, like in his pressed military uniform. He is very confident, standing up straight, shakes the hands of everyone in the cockpit, introduces himself, different name, but basically says, here's what happened. And then Roger goes into a total PTSD mania moment where he doesn't remember anything that he's supposed to do or say. So they're kind of all looking at him like, what's going on? Why isn't he? And then he looks up and he says, they have my kids. And he says that there are four, they were called weathermen, and they were um, kind of like a, a white militia group that was known for doing really bad things in the name of like, causes and like freeing people and stuff like that he said there are four weathermen on board who had kidnapped his twin daughters had forced him to hijack this plane and what and then he basically says the list of demands um he wants five hundred thousand dollars the angela davis and then tells them the plan of attack so hawaii so san francisco angela davis hawaii hanoi and then, of course, they're over, like, the loudspeaker because this is 1972. And so the pilot, the first thing he says is, ladies and gentlemen, we have a, um, a passenger up here who has decided that we will not be landing in Seattle today. So basically everyone's like, we're being hijacked. Oh, my God. Ah! But also, like, most, I mean, at this point, it's a scarier thing than it was. For sure. In the beginning um, when it was just free rides to Havana. Um, but, you know. Everyone's the like the people in the cockpit remain very calm. They immediately contact ground control, explain the situation. Um, they're also trying to kind of like glean whether or not he's telling the truth about like does he really have other people on board? Right. And then Roger grabs the like thingamabobber, gets on and Pretty tells fun. everybody on the plane that there are four weathermen on board. They all have a bomb. One of them's high on LSD. If anyone does anything crazy, he'll probably freak out and blow up the whole plane. So everyone starts to comply. Everybody's looking around. They're like, oh. everyone starts to comply. So, <laughs> and that was what it was. I'm so sorry. She wanted to exchange. That's why they were flying to Seattle. She wanted to exchange her one round trip ticket for two one way tickets right. to Seattle because right. all they needed to do was get on an airplane. Yeah, right. So he's telling them a plan, and the guy, uh, Jerry Jurgens, the pilot, basically says to him when he lays out what he wants to do, this plane is not capable of flying those distances, like we'll run out of fuel in midair. Right. And that's because his original plan had been to be on a different plane that was capable of crossing the ocean to get to Hawaii and all this stuff. This plane can't do that. So now he needs Angela Davis, $500,000, and they're going to need a different plane to get them from San Francisco to Hawaii and eventually to Hanoi. Can you just imagine being I these can. like people in the cockpit and also the people on board? But apparently this, the uh, flight attendants just go around giving everyone alcohol. Like it's flowing until it literally runs out. 
Um, they managed to get the money together. Angela, I'd be having a fucking, yeah. like a full fucking panic attack. Angela Davis is told about the situation and immediately is like, I have no idea what's going on. I had nothing to do with this. She is put on lockdown, like, so that no one can kidnap her. Because she's like, no, I'm. this is not she's a like, plot. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I want nothing to do with this. Um, so they think quickly and uh, they tell the pilots to tell Holder that she'd actually been acquitted at trial, even though that hadn't happened yet. So that's why she wasn't coming because she didn't need it anymore. She was oh, free. Right. Um, which, as you mentioned, did actually end up yeah, happening, but not because of not them, before no. this. So um, <clears throat> uh, ground control gets a hold of Bill Newell, who is another pilot that also has military experience and can fly um, the type of plane that can cross oceans. They ask him if he'd be willing to to pilot a hijacked aircraft. And he's like, yes, I will. Um requests you know a couple of his buddies who are also uh pilots to come with him but he doesn't like the fbi he does he feels like things have been there's been an accidental killing of uh, a passenger as a result of like a ricocheted bullet i think a pat like a pilot died or something with like the fbi so he hates the fbi so when they start to come in in preparation for their landing in san francisco he like blatantly disregards everything they tell him to do which is a big part of why Roger and Kathy were successful in this attempt. So Bill on the second flight, so flight 701 was the first leg, the leg that was hijacked en route to Seattle, turned around, went to San Francisco. They collected the money. Uh, At this point, everyone thinks it's over, right? They've landed. They're just waiting for the cash and the other airplane. But remember, Roger said half the passengers are getting off here. Right. So then the pilot has to come back on and say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so sorry. Everybody on the left-hand side of the plane um, stay put. You'll be fine. Everybody on the right-hand side. I'm so sorry. I guess we are moving to a different aircraft. The right-hand side just happened to be the side Kathy was sitting on. At this point, too, she has no fucking idea what's going on. Like, nothing is happening the way that he told her it was going to happen. Oh, my God. So they move um, everyone to the second airplane. The money is brought on. Um, he makes the pilot go get the money, bring it to him, counts it, and then they single file onto the next plane where Bill Newell is the captain. Again, he introduces himself to everyone, explains the situation, tells them what he'd like to do. And then Bill's like, there's literally this plane. We could make you to Hawaii. We cannot, like Hanoi is not an option. Um, And I don't know that there's going to be an airplane there that can get you where you need to go. Is there anywhere else you can think of that we could take you? Literally, like, and, and Roger says, like, he was, like, calling to him all the astrological, like, craziness, and out of nowhere, he says, Algeria. And Bill Newell's heart sinks. He had been a prisoner of war in Germany, and he knows that even though it's not, like, a war zone that they're flying into, it is not, like, an American-friendly area, and he's having all these horrible visions about, you know, people, like, them being shot down as they land. Yeah. So he's like, are you sure? Like, what about anywhere else? What about Toronto or something like that? And he's like, no, this is what we're doing. So they land in Hawaii, refuel, let everyone else off the plane. And this is when Kathy has to decide what to do because she doesn't know anything. She hasn't heard from him. She's supposed to act like she did, in fact, alert him to they were trying to sneak an FBI agent on board. And she started screaming loudly about like, what's going on? Is someone trying to pull something funny? He said they'd blow everything up if we did anything funny. And that actually caused Bill to like slam the doors on the maintenance crew and prevent an FBI person from getting on board. 
And so as she's thinking she might be able to just get up and walk off the plane and like no one will ever know she was part of this, he says, Kathy, you stay here. And she's like, okay, I'm still your boo. <laughs> so what? now they're what? off for Algeria. This is when finally like they embrace. Some articles suggest that they have sex on the plane. The book did not say that. They definitely are smoking lots of joints. As I mentioned, he's like highly medicated on marijuana. Right. So they've got the money. They're headed to Algeria. We've got our very nervous pilot, former POW, Bill Newell, who then um, is like, all right, here we go. Jeez Louise. Now, why Algeria? Remember the Black Panthers? Yes. So Leroy Eldridge Cleaver was the Black Panthers Minister of Information. He had been imprisoned. Um, when he was very young for attempted murder. He was an incredible writer and so amazing with words that when he was released from prison, he almost like immediately rose through the ranks of the Black Panthers, even ran for president, even though he wasn't old enough, he was only 33, and got 0.05% of the vote as a black man in the 60s. Um, But after um, there was a fight, like a shootout, between police officers and Black Panthers in Oakland, where two police officers were killed, he fled to Algeria, which was like a very friendly nation to anybody that opposed the United States, the United States government, and like the Western mm-hmm. way of life. So they're kind of like kings over there. Like they're treated great by the Algerian government. And so even though Roger and Kathy were not Black Panthers, you guys, they did some reading on stuff, but they weren't active members. Right. They say... One of the conditions when we get picked up is that we want Eldridge Cleaver to meet us at the at the gate. So he's immediately contacted, finds out about the five hundred thousand dollars. They're um their like little Algerian section of the Black Panthers is broke. And right. so they're ecstatic. Yeah. Like, yes, five hundred grand. Um, meanwhile, Kathy and Roger are thinking, like, we're gonna go live now on the Riviera of Algeria, like play. Um, you know, on the in the water and just spend right. five hundred thousand dollars slowly, right? Because Algeria or Algiers, where they're going, is in Algeria, which is like an it's it was colonized by the French, mm-hmm. and they had just gotten their uh, freedom from the French in nineteen sixty six or something like that, right? And but it was but like you said, it was like a it was like French Riviera. It was French Riviera. It was beautiful. Many, even still, to, obviously, still today, but it's many cultures. There's mm-hmm. Islamic, there's North African, Everyone there's feels Mediterranean. Like accepted. Yeah, it's a it's a melting pot, and it's a port of like a place yeah. for many people. So it's like, it's a metropolitan. Like, oh yeah, you they know. were like he says when the words Algeria came out of his mouth, which were not a plan. The plan was Hanoi, yeah. that he felt like all of a sudden, the universe again was like, this Opening is up. what you're this supposed what to you do. Know. Like you're going home. And they land. They're immediately greeted by, like, government agencies of the Algerian prince, taken and interviewed. The money is confiscated. After several days of being interrogated and not allowed to leave their hotel room, um, they're like, yeah, you're cool. Clearly, you're not some, like, CIA agents pretending to be terrorists to, like, infiltrate our government system. You guys can go. But the money is getting sent back along with the aircraft and the crew because we're not trying to start a war with America. So that's how that's going to go. And they're like, God, damn they're a little it. bit bummed out, but they're also ecstatic that they got away with this, that they have, they're being lauded as like heroes to the Algerian people, to all of these Black Panther members. But once the Black Panther realizes they're not going to get their money, well, they're annoyed. Not so accepting. Not, well, they're still accepting, but they're just kind of like, oh, you guys suck. Yeah. 
Then another group from Detroit um, who were, it was basically like a commune. It was a couple, two brothers, and a single young woman. Um, There was three children between like the couple. The couple had two kids and the single woman had one kid. They read about this and they lived in Detroit. They had suffered immense amounts of uh, police brutality through something that had been created in the Detroit area called STRESS, the STRESS unit, which um, was a unit of police that would uh, dress like plainclothes bums and sit on the street and just like wait for anyone to break even a minor infraction of the law and then like pounce on them. And it was very violent. Lots of people got beaten up. And STRESS stood for Stop Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets. And I just feel like... I, I just wanted Very to timely. say that it just feels like we still have that today. Um, and it's crazy to me that these are things that are happening in this in the early 70s and yeah. nothing seems to have changed at all. Yeah. Um, so they decide to do the same thing. And they hijack a plane and they ask for a million dollars. And then they say they would like to go to Algeria. Now, the big difference here and why the FBI, who didn't have Bill Newell in their way, right. get away with it is because they have three small children with them. And no one's injured. Like everybody, all the passengers are get, off, get off the plane and they make it. But again, the money is confiscated. They are all held and interviewed. And then they're like, cool, you're welcome to stay yeah. here. The money is not coming with you. And at this point, Eldridge Cleaver, the leader of the Black Panther section in Algeria, is pissed. <laughs> and he's like, we need that money, man. And a lot of people are trying to figure out how to, like, exploit Roger and Kathy, but it's not working. Like, they can't make money off of them. Yeah. People are interested, but they're not going to pay money to the Black Panthers to talk about it. Um, and so after this happens, he writes an open letter to the prince of um, Algeria that basically says, like, you are taking our money. You said that you were, you know, were anti-America and, like, agreed with our values. And by taking this money and returning it to them, you're showing that you actually completely align with the West and all this stuff. And that's it, persona non grata. Like, they are cut off. All of the um, housing they had been provided, the $500 a month they'd been given by the government, he's, like, all of it's taken away, and Eldridge needs to flee for France. And when he leaves, in his place, he names the new director of the um, Algerian Black Panther section to Roger Holder, who at this point has become completely disillusioned with them, their beliefs. He thinks they're a bunch of posers that just, like, want to say things but would never be willing to do anything in order Wait, Roger becomes disillusioned yeah with no them? Roger becomes disillusioned with the Black Panthers oh. specifically with Eldridge but when he flees to France he puts Roger <laughs> in charge who no longer even believes in and these he's ideals like, but he's like okay so it basically all grinds into the ground under Roger's leadership but because oh. he doesn't care right and eventually they all end up having to flee and with the help of Eldridge Cleaver, they actually all, so that group of five with the three kids I just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, Kathy and Roger, all end up making it to France, who have great, amazing, they think of themselves as a country mm-hmm. based and built upon revolution. So mm-hmm. anybody who has defied their government for political reasons can seek asylum in France and will not be extradited like automatically. And by the way, uh, they in Algiers, they speak French. So Kathy had been brushing up on her French and getting real She's good She's getting at really it. good at the French. So... It is, let's see, where are we? So they've, they're in France. It's like 1974, 75. Yeah. At this point, um, Roger's PTSD, his mania, 
Um, over time, he would be hospitalized many, many, many times. He had been diagnosed over the years with like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, mm. um, mania, PTSD for sure. And um, this was getting like really out of control for him. Like he yeah. was increasingly paranoid. He would go into like seizures from anxiety. And Kathy, at this point, they were really no longer lovers. Even though he had proposed to her in Algeria on the beach right before everything went to shit and they all had to get out of there, but she never answered. Oh, it's not a rom crime. Well, it was. They really, really loved each other at first. But at this point, she's like more of his caretaker. Like the man who she had followed into this crazy scheme and adventure now was like deteriorating mentally so quickly that it was, she had no choice but to take over as his like primary caregiver and then decision maker anytime something came up. So they're mostly like brother and sister at this point. Um, But she still takes care of him. They're still there for each other. So one day, the French police... Oh, sorry, January 6th. There it was. I was like, I wrote it down, 1975. French French police notice a black man looking very like vacant-eyed and bleary-eyed walking down by one of the beautiful rivers in France. And Mm -hmm. they um, ask him for identification. When he says he doesn't have any, they take him into the police. They interview him he tells them the truth he literally says his name that he hijacked a plane um you know flew to blah 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 his story is so crazy that they're like oh this crazy homeless dude so they let him go (laughs) but then the they'd taken his name and like entered it you know he said i'm from the u.s the uh, as soon as the united states is notified of this they call them and they're like oh my god no like that guy's they Mm -hmm. rush over to the apartment that's clearly been vacated like mass max an hour earlier and they can still see all of um, these like men's and women's clothing hanging there so Kathy found out what he did and she got them the hell out of there then they end up thinking they spent enough time away they go back they're there waiting for them they get taken to court and basically they say that their hijacking was politically motivated they get a great lawyer and um, France is like yeah no, we will not give them back to America. We will try them here for their crimes. But that was clearly political, even though one could argue, was it? Yeah. Was it mania? And then some hippie girl's desire for something fun and different to do that day. But he did say in his original demands that he wanted to go to Hanoi to give money to Viet Cong orphans as like, what's the word when you pay someone back? Like, like reparations. Or yeah, or just type, like or... or penance. Like oh, yeah. I, just like say like, I'm so sorry for what I did to your people. And uh, so they go, they have their hearing or whatever. Uh, Everyone is like stunned by Kathy. At this point, she's no longer like a hippie. She's now 23. She's stunning, but she's like a French sophisticate with like really great (laughs) outfits. And she speaks perfect French. Right. And the French um, press becomes like infatuated with her and they get swept up into this world of like celebrities, all of the crazy, like famous writers and um, filmmakers and actors like that is who they're like socializing she, exactly with. right there she be, she becomes like friends with all of the cool people yes. and they love it they're like oh we've got this crazy woman in our circle who was high who hijacked a plane she went all the way to yeah, but like also like based on their principles right of like yeah. saying fuck you america you're horrible in the way that you you know think that you have like all the power and the way you treat your own citizens and the way you murder innocent you know um vietnamese civilians and all these things like yeah. we're, we're you know we're disgusted by the u.s and you guys just really like stuck it to them in this most fantastical way so they're so just like all the french like they love them like jean paul sartre who's like maybe a 
one of the most famous like French authors is yeah. obsessed with them. Like yeah. they are just they're hanging with all the cool cats, right? But again, as we mentioned, Holder has some serious mental problems, you guys. So even though he is like well-loved within yeah. these circles as being like delightfully quirky and odd and smart and mm-hmm. handsome, um, he ends up checking himself into a psychiatric facility. When he's released, he becomes overwhelmed with the desire to go home and to make amends with his daughters yeah. and like his family. And... He tries to do so, but then the French are like, no, because if we do that, then the people will think that we kowtow to the American people. You have to stay. You have a trial date set. You guys know that. So they're basically like on parole in Paris, you know. Um, and Sexy parole. Sexy parole. Yeah. Yeah, They're partying with movie stars, but they're not allowed to leave Paris. And that becomes like a prison to him as he just becomes desperate to come home. And then in 19... um, February of 1978, there's like three separate blizzards that hit... Paris and uh Kathy comes to visit they are fully like not together in any way shape or form in fact they're not really speaking all that often but she comes to visit him to try to give him comfort and tell him that everything is going to be okay you know and he's like I want to go home and she's like why would you want to do that you're going to go to prison he's like I can't live in limbo here I don't know what's going to happen to us and she's like well here's the thing I'm going to go with some friends for the weekend to Geneva but then I'll be back and we'll figure this out together I love you I'll always love you she gives him a watch Kathy Kirk, uh, Kirkout disappears into the night and has never been seen again. That's right. She is still, still on the FBI most wanted yes. list, which is great. Still to this day. She would be like, what? 51. So, so she would be like 69. Yeah. She's probably like just living in the south of France somewhere and looks fabulous. Or and Geneva nobody has Swiss, any idea yeah. that she's not. Had enough plastic surgery. She's like, oh, But darling. yeah, Roger, on the other hand, ends up going to trial in June of 1980. And again, everybody in France is like really anti, you know, especially like the Vietnam War and like America. And so mm. when he's being asked to show like remorse by the judge, he literally says, my only regret, if I could do it again, I would smash the plane into the ground to like show political conviction. People cheer. He's ultimately sentenced to time served. As it doesn't spend a day in jail. Oh, but wow. As a condition of... That's in France. In France. Okay. As a condition of that, he's like on parole, I guess you could say, hey? For five years, and which case he is forbidden to leave the country of France for five years. So he still can't go home. Oh the one God. thing he wants to do, he like gets in touch with everyone he knows. Like, help me get home. Help me get home. Help me get home. Time is going by in and out of mental institutions. Um, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Eldridge Cleaver <laughs> had become a born-again Christian. So he was the Black Panther from Algeria that was in right. charge that insulted the the prince there or the president or whatever you call yeah. the leader. Um, and he'd become born again, had actually gone back to the States to like take the, you know, like pay his time, ended up getting an amazing lawyer and kind of getting out of it all and decides he's going to help his friend. So after finally five years, he gets to come back to America. He's flown home, immediately arrested. He's basically sentenced to um he gets the same lawyer that Eldridge Cleaver used where he is charged with far lesser um crimes because during in the height of this kind of like the golden age of hijacking. the golden age of hijacking it became like a capital case you hijacked a plane you're put to death right. but at this point now it's 1986 and no one's really hijacked a plane since like 1974 right and because in 1973 they installed yes they finally like got the baggage their shit together Checked, they checked people's luggage and made people walk through metal detectors and yeah. 
searched bags and not just people who maybe were bad, everyone. Yeah. Um, so he, and so like, it's not this big thing anymore. It seems almost like a quaint thing that used to happen in a bygone era that mm-hmm. we all long for. So he's charged with like, <laughs> I think something about kidnapping. Anyway, he serves like four years in prison, gets out, tries to reunite with his daughters. The bitterness that they feel towards him is just too much to overcome. Um, he's just a broken man who like wanders around kind of like muttering to himself and, but still like, just like wants to be this person who made a difference in the world. Right. So he's drinking way too much, smoking a lot of weed. And who does he start hanging out with? But do you remember his first wife, Betty Bullock, Mm -hmm. his brother, and they're getting stoned and drunk one day. And he's, you know, talking about his glory days of hijacking this plane. And he's like, I want to do it again, I think. And shouldn't have said that to Mr. Bullock because he happens to be a police informant and had been for 15 years. So then... Wait, how did... how? Why was he a police informant? How do we know? Because he was was a criminal. No, he knew him. He was the his Uh, ex-brother-in-law. But he just happened to be a police informant. They got wasted. He mentioned that he would do do it again. In fact, he's thinking about doing it again. But this is like a drunk, stoned, manic person rambling. Basically... They, like, kind of set him up. They have an undercover officer pose as, like, a guy from Tijuana that can sell him parts to make a bomb. But Roger's, like, really, he, he he's on to it immediately. So he never says anything to actually, like, implicate himself. And, in fact, he keeps saying, I don't want to do this, man. Like, I was wasted when I was talking. But then he's arrested, you know. But immediately the judge is like, that was entrapment motherfuckers fbi you guys like forced him to keep going along even when he asked repeatedly and said he didn't want to go along with it so he is freed let go he meets um a woman named joy uh um later in life and they become lovers she takes his last name even though they never officially marry and she cares for him and they live together and they have a wonderful life and the book ends with the author actually going and talking to Roger about the experience and, and asking him again, if he would do it again. And Roger gets only gets mad at him one time. And he's like, I don't know how to fucking answer that question. Like it was a product of the times and I wanted to do something great. So yeah, I probably would do it again. Maybe I'd do it. I don't know, man. He talks about Kathy and how he wished that he knew where she was and he could love her and take care of her for the rest of his life. But then the next time they meet, he talks like shit on her. Finally, joy, calls the author and is like, I'm sure you've noticed, you know, some strange behavior, but uh, Roger actually, has, he's got less than a year to live. He's been diagnosed with two brain t- uh, tumors. Oh, interesting. And then at the age of 62, he died of a sudden brain aneurysm mm. and passed away. When and was that? he was working on his own memoirs. I think it was in, it was in, let's see, 62 years old. She would be 69 now. So it was like in like 2012, yeah. maybe. Um, but he had been working on his memoirs. It was something he'd actually tried to do all along. Like that oh, was sure. going to be somehow he told his story. And so that is why um, Brendan Corner wrote this book, told yeah. his story. And he likes to believe that Kathy somehow uh, managed to find that that American dream that she was so desperately in search of. All mm-hmm. she had to do was leave America to find it. And that she's living in you know, France somewhere. Nobody has any idea that she isn't French because she was that good at speaking French. Mm-hmm. Her children don't know, right. you know, and that she has this beautiful, fabulous life. And he hopes that that's true for her. Wow. That nobody actually knows where she is. And she's still in the FBI. As well I'm as sure she's, you know, out there. Oh, I yeah. Mean, wow. 
What a crazy story. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for that recommendation. I know. I thank you, Milk Party 666. Don't know how we, if we would have found it because truthfully, there's not a lot on it. So. No, and the book is great, and I really do. Yeah. We'll put a link for that as well. Yep. I highly recommend Absolutely. reading it. There was a lot of interesting stuff about like aviation. I mean, every hijack that happened, he basically touches on it. If I had done that, Vanya would have like kicked me out of her house. I mean, like, no, I don't know what you're doing. No, it just would have been a four-part series. But yeah, so I recommend <laughs> the book. It's so good. Um, and I just thought this story was such a cool rom-crime. I know, me too. And I read a few pages and I was just like, this is so good. I just want to read this. But I'm glad that you did. Thank you, Evan, for course, taking the brunt. Yes. I promise to do the next little bit as well um guys please rate review and subscribe to us on and wherever you listen to your podcast right particularly apple podcast helps us out a lot so we do appreciate it yes we'll see you next week nope we'll talk to you we'll chat at you next week that's right we love (laughs) you we love you bye Bye.